From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. COVID-19 means colleges and college students are at a crossroads. Take Bailey Walker, for example. He's about to graduate high school. He wants to go to college, but not if it's online only. Especially being a freshman, like, I think it's so crucial to, like, be on campus and be able to meet people the first year. And just kind of seeing a bunch of strangers on Zoom each day, hoping that eventually we'll meet in person, isn't something I really want to do for my first year. Then, what we gain when we take cold showers. It forces you to focus on the cold water cascading over your naked body. Mm -hmm. And it put me directly in the moment. How subjecting yourself to stress can help you manage it, especially in trying times. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and it's a moment of reckoning for colleges and universities statewide. Do they reopen their campuses to students in the fall, stick with distance learning, maybe a mix? Do they risk losing students who won't pay full freight without the full campus experience? Bailey Walker of Denver is about to graduate high school and has his own reckoning. I definitely am inclined to take more time off if I would be remote learning again. Let's get perspective on colleges at a crossroads from Regis University in Denver, where Janet Hauser is provost. Hi, Janice. Good morning. And from inside higher ed, journalist Doug Letterman. Hello, Doug. Hey there. How are you? I'm doing well. And Doug, why don't we start with an overview of how you've seen colleges adjust to this new normal? Are, are some more nimble than others? Sure. So it has been, uh, as it's turned all, most of our lives upside down, it has certainly turned the, the lives of uh, students and faculty members and, and college employees upside down and, and the world of higher ed. In general, I'd say higher education has done a fantastic, almost miraculous job. When you think about people, how people think about this as an industry that sort of is stuck in its ways and, and can't adapt, the fact that, that colleges collectively around the United States got tens of millions, millions and millions of students sort of to be able to continue their educations this spring. Again, almost miraculous and, 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 and really deserving of credit to the colleges. And in general, you know, it happens. We're able to continue on their educational paths. So that's the very positive side. Okay. Um, less so is just enormous, uh, diversity of and variation in the experience they had. And I think it's important that while the shift to sort of, we've described the shift to being to remote learning, very different from online learning. Online education, um, about a third of all students had taken an online course in, in the United States before this all happened. Um, and there's a wide variation in, in the sort of quality of online education generally. But what happened this spring wasn't online education to the extent that sort of programs that these courses were built from the start to be mm. online and to be deliver, delivered effectively online. So I, I, I think it's a mistake to be, to describe 
what most students uh, undertook this spring as being, quote, online education in the way that I think it, it is best delivered. And so, and yet... Yeah, let me, let me just say, I, I want to say that that's a really important point. In other words, uh, when you have right. online courses, they are built, as you say, from the ground up that way. What has happened is that in-person classes have become remote. That's not necessarily ideal. Can you give me an example of something that just hasn't translated well? well or? Sure. Well, sure. So, so first of all, the, the, I mean, there's a bunch of, there's a bunch, but I, uh, but uh, in general, online courses, not only is the course delivered in certain ways and with different kinds of uh, structures and different kinds of um, like a, a, a school that is really good at this has all the online courses basically have a roughly similar structure. And when you go on to the, the, the learning management system or the technology that's used to deliver it, the, 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 the links to where that you people can get tutoring is in the same place every time. And so there's, it's, it's navigable in a way mm. that, that, uh, you know, so, so there's a, and, and so what really happened here was that most schools, uh, put cameras in classrooms and streamed lectures um, or streamed conversations between you know the, the students and the professors, and that can be really good. But it also means that students who are uh, who are uh, less uh, adept, and faculty members, goodness knows, who are less adept, um, the experience can be really mixed. And so it's it's just there's a, there's all sorts of examples um, about about the sort of uh, the differences between online and, and remote. And, but of course, uh, we're, we're all experiencing this in our lives absolutely. in some way, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, less than totally. satisfying connections with family or with coworkers, whether right. we're in higher ed or not. And so it is a, a mixed experience, as you say, and different schools were differently prepared. Um, the semester is just ending, and Janet Regis recently released its plan for fall. And what jumps out to me is the adjusted schedule. The semester will begin earlier and it'll end right before Thanksgiving break. Can you explain that choice? Absolutely. I think if one has to look at what one expects from the public health departments and also uh, having a bit of a background in epidemiology to be able to read the models and determine what we think might happen. And we're expecting that this will, uh, the COVID-19 will raise its head again at the end of November sometime in the fall, but unfortunately at that time we'll also see flu season, cold season, uh, lots of people in gatherings, etc. So our plan was made for two things. One was to try and get students home before Thanksgiving for the duration so that if we have another surge and a stay-at-home order, our students will already be safely at home. And by starting early and going through our school break, we can release them from their physical campus needs before Thanksgiving. They wouldn't have to return until after the first of the year. Of course, all of their final examinations would have to be online. But the second reason that we did this was that what we heard this spring particularly at Regis, because we do have many of those vibrant things that Doug was talking about. Um, but we were able to shift to virtual learning, which is um, not just online. It includes lots of experiences. We were able to do that regularly, seamlessly. And yet we had students tell us, I learned what I needed to. We're doing an analytics of grades and withdrawals and finding out we did very well on both of those. 
but they missed the student experience. They missed that co-curricular aspect. They missed the maturation that comes from interacting independently. They missed the experiences they get from travel abroad and from seeing each other. And so our schedule was also planned to give students a maximum campus experience before they had to leave. So I just want to be clear that that Regis is building its schedule around the possibility that there's a second wave of COVID-19. Yes, okay. it is. And, and we it, also want to be prepared in the classrooms for that. And so we've upped our game in terms of how we can move between virtual and classroom experiences yeah, as we need to. Yeah, because what else uh, strikes me about Regis's plan is that there's a, a kind of hybridity. Um, students could attend in person or online. So there's there's some flexibility you're building in that way because there may be students who just don't feel comfortable yet, huh? Right. We have both, though. About 60% of our classes were already in the virtual environment. And so we're building classes this fall that enable students to be able to shift back and forth, should that be necessary, for them to be able to be in Zoom, which we may be familiar with, and which we can actually interact in real time, or for them to be in the classroom. And that will be particularly important if we're limited to to 10 people in a classroom, we'll be able to have students in class and on Zoom and still have that campus experience, which is what our goal is for is, this fall. Is that the number you're currently working with, 10 kids in a classroom? That's the expectation if we continue under the current restrictions. Okay. I do think that they'll lift over the summer, but we have to be ready for that. If uh, our average class size is 30, then we have to be ready if they've put that in place. And so all of these plans are about being ready, adaptable, nimble, and I'll add the word scrappy. Scrappy. Being determined that our students get what they need. It's fascinating because I remember my early classes uh, in college, which, you know, had more than 100 students. I mean, giant, you know, 101 classes. I guess those just become all online then? We can still manage those, particularly if we're not limited to 10. Our big classrooms, we can uh, strap the chairs so that they're six feet apart. We can ask students to wear masks that we intend to provide for them. We can be simultaneously uh, streaming a program where students can speak in at the same time we have students in the classroom. We're using every bit of creativity that we have and every bit of technological potential that we have to both make our make sure our students get the learning they need, but that they get a maximum campus experience. And so all of our contingency planning is around that with the third goal of being able to move very quickly to a full virtual online environment should we need to do that. If you need to do that. So the nimbleness Mm -hmm. built in. Let's hear again from high school senior Bailey Walker, who explains why he is over remote learning. Especially being a freshman, like, I think it's so crucial to like be on campus and be able to meet people the first year and just kind of seeing a bunch of strangers on Zoom each day, hoping that eventually we'll meet in person isn't something I really want to do for my first year. And so he essentially is saying there is the possibility of a gap year. And Doug from Inside Higher Ed, Doug Letterman, are we staring down the possibility of a massive adoption of gap years coming up here? Well, <laughs> gap years are have historically been the province of the wealthy. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure, well, I certainly think we could see a lot more students seek to defer. I, I'm, I'm not 
necessarily thinking that's the best plan because defer for what? I mean, uh, a lot of the students who who go on gap years historically travel abroad or go get a a, a job. We're not sure any of those things are going to be possible. Um, I mean, again, I, I'm probably sitting in a maybe I'm sitting in a slightly different um, uh, situation from uh, from Janice, but the the. I have a hard time picturing a lot of campuses opening this fall. I think the 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 the, the sentiment of opening in person, the sentiment that you just uh, expressed from you know shared from that student. I think a lot of students feel that way, and I think a lot of institutions are responding uh, to that. And I, I think there are you know meaningful numbers of colleges around the country, dozens, maybe a, a couple hundred, that have sort of signaled or, or are in the position if they don't open and can't uh, can't have an on-campus presence for the year, may well shut down entirely. So there's oh. there's a lot of factors in what's I think driving institutions' announcements about the fall. I think in most cases, and again, maybe I'm I'm sitting in Washington in the Washington D.C. area where we're still uh, sheltered in place, um, not expecting that to change into the early part of the summer. I think there's going to be a lot of enormous enormous variation for, by regions, but I think we're going to see. And so I totally understand why a lot of institutions are announcing right now that they're going that they want to open and that they're planning to open. I just I think it's premature to be confident that you can. Um, and I think we're starting to see some institutions announce very much in the other direction that they're definitely going to be virtual in the fall. And that's where there's going to be a huge demand. I think the expectations uh, for what students get uh, this spring, or sorry, this fall is going to be very different from what they were uh, uh, satisfied with, or, or if not satisfied with, um, willing to accept this spring. And so I think there's colleges are in a difficult place. So, Janet, can you speak a bit to like dorm life and dining halls and the student union? I mean, we've talked about mm-hmm. the classroom, but the college experience is, is more holistic than that. Absolutely. I, I would like to speak to Doug's point, though, as I do know many, many colleges are anticipating opening at some some level this fall. Seventy-three percent of the universities that were surveyed identified they plan to open this fall. Of course, all of us have to follow what our public health departments are telling us to do. Dorm life is tougher. Um, we don't know yet whether we'll have to have one student to a room, two students to a room. Asking students not to congregate is a much more difficult proposition. And so we have a whole range of contingencies in place for student housing. One that folks don't often think about, though, is that we have a number of students who are homeless when they're not in our dormitories. And uh, we we did this spring. And so we also have to think about as we consider the questions about equity, what is equitable for our students that don't have adequate technology or adequate internet access at mm. home? Trying to find those balances between a campus life and uh, learning and a safe life, which is our number one concern here. So I think all of us are saying we'll follow what public health tells us to do, but we know what would be ideal would be if we can safely find a way to open campus in the fall for students to have a campus experience. In announcing that Regis would open in some form in the fall, is that responding to competition? Do you feel the comp- like the pressure of the market there to maybe make a decision that's actually faster than than the health indicators? 
Actually, no. And we've watched the models pretty carefully. So uh, we would not do this if the health indicators were telling us it would not be safe. What we are doing is not responding to the competition or to the markets. Um, We're responding to parents' requests to know so they can start planning and for students' requests to make decisions about making a final commitment somewhere. Mm. Uh, We know that many students, if they're faced with online only, are going to take a gap year. And I would not be doing my duty if I don't speak to the dangers of a gap year. Students that take a gap year are less likely to come back each year that passes, and they reduce their chances for success in college with every year that they take or even a semester away from us. So we want to offer an attractive education so those students will continue whether they're at Regis or at another college. But we want to make sure we can offer a campus experience that we can as long as it's safe. As long as it's safe. Uh, And that may take any number of forms depending on uh, what things look like in the fall. Thanks to both of you for being with us. You just heard from the provost at Regis University in Denver, Janet Hauser, and Doug Letterman, journalist and co-founder of the higher education news site Inside Higher Ed. College graduates face challenges too. They're entering one of the most difficult job markets in recent memory. Even those who've secured jobs aren't necessarily in the clear. CPR's Grace Hood reports. Maddie Cavanis considers herself lucky. She's a recent engineering grad from the Colorado School of Mines, a planner by nature. After two summers of internships with Swinnerton Builders, she secured a full-time job. But she knows work will be unlike anything she's experienced. Long days in the office, talking through a mask. It is strange. You lose that personal connection with people. All of a sudden, you're reading people by the tones of their voice and their body movements rather than the shape of their face. Cavanis wanted more social interaction compared to some traditional engineering jobs. So she decided to work as a project engineer in construction. She says even science and math jobs aren't safe careers in this job market. Many friends, particularly in petroleum engineering, have seen job offers revoked. I think it's going around all of social media that our generation's first memories is 9-11. And now we're all graduating into a job market That is virtually non-existent. Non-existent with a very uncertain future. Edwin Koch works at the National Association of Colleges and Employers, which keeps tabs on the job market. He held the job through the 2008 recession. Now it's COVID-19. I asked him if there are any job fields that are recession-proof. Frankly, no. He says the only silver lining right now is that the majority of grads who already had job offers will probably just see their start dates delayed. You may be delayed, but you probably still have that offer in hand. I was excited to start my job and really ready. Rebecca Litton majored in business at the University of Colorado Boulder. She secured a consulting job with Deloitte. Now her start date is delayed by six months. She says she's entering a bizarre limbo period. She can't go out and do much in her free time. So she's exploring volunteerism. So helping out with volunteering for COVID with, you know, some of my business skills or something could be really meaningful. The bad news for college grads is that typical labor jobs like restaurant or hotel work aren't something to fall back on now. 
Tilo Lopez majored in journalism at Colorado State University. His dream is to be a sports cameraman, where sometimes the ball would come to him. You see those cameramen always getting hit. I want to be those, those people. But he'll have to wait. Lopez saw his college internship gig filming CSU's sports teams postponed. He'll still get paid through mid-May. So at first I was looking for a career back in February, and now I'm looking just to get a job to survive, so my standards definitely lowered. There, I'm just looking for any place that's hiring now. The working world has turned a cold shoulder to students like Lopez who dream of highly specific career paths that demand professional connections. Ed Koch says the path to success in the past involved working jobs that don't require a college degree, like hotels or bartending. It allowed students to build professional pathways that they don't have right out of college. That's very concerning because those transitional jobs are in an industry that is particularly hard hit by the, the uh, virus. That means it could take longer for some students to embark on their chosen career paths. Koch says he's especially worried about first-generation college students and minorities who may not have robust support systems. It'll just increase a level of inequality that already exists in this society. Finding the right mentors could give some an edge. Kelly Crispin is a first-generation student and recent grad from Front Range Community College. She studied to become a certified medical assistant and just started a new job. It definitely was scary at moments. When COVID-19 hit, she wondered if she was even cut out for it. But she pushed through the fear. She learned more about the virus, and things became less scary. And I'm just so happy to have been surrounded by the people that I was because they really were the best mentors to get me through this time as a trainee and a student. Crispin says some in her office who had years of experience struggled with new coronavirus medical protocols. She got used to them quickly, and that hits at one of the biggest assets that 2020 grads have. Sometimes a fresh perspective can make all the difference. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with how modern life has made us forget our built-in resilience. Fortunately, there are ways to tap back into it, but they're not always very comfortable. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. Colorado Public Radio is a nonprofit public service that depends on donations from the community. Many listeners and local businesses cannot support at this time, but if you can, your gift at this moment is critical. You can keep local journalism and non-commercial music strong. And when you give now, the Colorado Health Foundation will match your generosity with a donation that will feed a family in need for a week. Learn more and give at CPR.org. Two words are on people's minds a lot these days. They rhyme. Breath and death. If you're like me, you've become almost obsessed with breath. Is it clear? Is it full? The ultimate fear being death. And so it was strange to read a new book that tackles both subjects. Strange because it went to press before the pandemic. Investigative journalist Scott Carney of Denver traveled all over the world to meet with scientists and healers who study the body's natural resilience, which often emerges when we're faced with stress. It's why he purposely put himself 
in stressful situations, playing with heavy objects, tricking his mind into thinking great white sharks were on the prowl, subjecting himself to extreme temperatures. His new book is called The Wedge. We'll explain that title in just a bit. But Scott, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to see, to hear your voice again. Yeah, we don't actually get to see each other. That's the times we are in. I, at the root of my preoccupation with breath and death, I realize is fear. And you meet a scientist who studies fear. Uh, he's the one who helped you feel like you were being hunted by great whites. Who is he? What is he trying to learn? So Andrew Huberman is a neuroscientist at Stanford trying to understand the roots of fear. Uh, and he does this by making you swim with virtual sharks, uh, virtual great white sharks. And, you know, he spends a lot of time off the coast of Mexico swimming with great whites. And he takes these 360 degree images of the sharks and then brings them back to his lab to put people into this, you know, sort of fearful environment. And what I was hoping to understand with him him is how when you're in the presence of something that's really terrifying, how you can control your responses to that. You know, there are certain sensations that come with fear, right? It's not just the anticipation of getting eaten by a shark, but there's these heart changes and there's these emotions that, that sort of roil through you. And the people he studies generally um, have anxiety disorders. So they get very nervous very quickly in these VR simulations. And I wanted to put myself up against this really strong stimulus and then learn to control my fear. The problem was, while conceptually it works really well for people who are nervous easily, um, for me, I wasn't that scared of the virtual sharks. They, <laughs> they, they, they didn't quite hit that sort of really strong root in my body. So I left his lab with a really strong understanding of fear and how sensation and emotion get linked up together in memory. But I was still looking for other techniques that could sort of let me dig deeper. And this brings you uh, really around the world to meet all sorts of interesting scientists and healers. And I, I do think that what you laid out there is a good description of The Wedge. That's the title of your book. It's the idea, it kind of reminds me of what my mom used to say, which is, you can't change outside events, but you can change how you react to them. It's almost like a, a biohacking. Do I have that right? Oh, yeah, absolutely right. I mean, you know, we live in a world of like chaos, especially right now. Like the world has gone mad, right? And we look out there and we can see, you know, we worry about COVID. We worry about the economy. We worry about our health. We worry about all sorts of things that we have no control over. And what I've learned in The Wedge is that you can learn to control those reactions um, by sort of creating space between the stimulus, which in this case could be that just you know, listening to the morning news, right? <laughs> and then the response, how your body um, interacts. And the way we do it is, is actually by generalizing stress, um, by facing other things that are difficult, that give you sort of an environment that forces you to react and forces your body to respond to something that's difficult, uh, such as, for instance, an ice bath or confronting a fear or doing an exercise that's very, very emotionally and physically taxing. You learn that by managing your physical responses to stress, you also get resilience to the, all the emotional uh, things that are really racking our nerves these days. So this is something we can practice. In other words, it's, for lack of a better term, it's a muscle that we can develop to 
make sure that stress and fear have a different um, toll on our body. I guess, isn't that just biofeedback, Scott? Biofeedback is certainly in the same wheelhouse, um, as is yoga, as is meditation, as is martial arts. I mean, there's so many cognates out here. And and the way I think of it, there's so many different wedges out there Hmm. where, you know, you can become a very well-adjusted person really digging deep into practices that you're already doing. But when you add sort of an emotional component to it and then manage the emotion and the physical at the same time, you get very resilient. You know, I like to think about this in relation to where our ancestors were. You know, we had the same underlying biology as, you know, our prehistoric cavemen 300,000 years ago. And in those times, our threats were visceral and real. It was like lions charging you, right? And when you had, when the lion was coming, you had to grab your spear and stab the lion or run away from it. And the threat had this physical response um, from your body, which was releasing adrenaline, which was releasing cortisol and these sorts of things. But when we fast forward to the modern world, so many of our threats are esoteric, right? They, they come at you through the news and through the social medias and through, you know, looking at your bank statements. And when you look at those things, you still release the same chemicals your Paleolithic ancestors did, but you don't have the physical response to match it. And what happens is those chemicals, those hormones, sort of turn crazy in your own body and they drive up depression, they, they foster anxiety, and weirdly, even autoimmune illnesses. So your idea is to expose ourselves to that and to become resilient in the face of that. And, you know, like maybe maybe a small version of this, uh, as you write, is that we exert control over our body's processes, reactions all the time. When we delay a sneeze, for instance, when we resist the urge to laugh when someone tickles us, those are small examples of the kind of power we have and the kind of power that you're harnessing here. Yeah, absolutely. And the question really comes down to why are we conscious, right? You know, why did we evolve to be able to make decisions about the world? And, and you know, you could conceive of life occurring without decision-making abilities, right? But somehow the, the evolutionary process gave us the ability to make choices about the world. And, our, and choices about the world come to us through our sensory system. Like we have to see the lion, right? We have to smell the arcid flames of some poisonous gas, right? We have to respond to the environment. And this this gives us sensations. And those sensations are what we can modulate. Because when you face, uh, let's say, an ice bath. And I'm big on ice baths. I think they're pretty yeah. great. And you, you also, you, as you've said before when you've been on the show, you also take cold showers, which I, I've tried myself yeah. and they're just awful. <laughs> I mean, Ryan, you are so correct. They are miserable. And that is also why they're so wonderful. And about 10 minutes ago, I got out of a cold shower because I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be talking to all of Colorado right now. That is somewhat nerve wracking, right? But the, what the cold shower does and, and all of these stressful stimulus do is force you to focus on that thing, right? It forces you to focus on the cold water cascading over your naked body. Mm -hmm. And it put me directly in the moment. And the anxiety, so anxiety is essentially like adrenaline running through your body with nowhere to go. But the cold shower gave it a place to deal with. And then I come here and now I'm talking to you. And don't I just sound wonderful on the radio? Well, I think you don't sound nervous, which is really nice. (laughs) Um, Well, the thread of this latest book is 
stress. So the stress of extreme temperature. Uh, on the on the other mm-hmm. end, a guided five hour sauna in Latvia. Um, the stress mm-hmm. of a heavy object hurled at your head. You meet this dude who has a kind of focused ritual of throwing kettlebells back and forth with a partner. It's like an anvil in the Looney Tunes cartoons. You expose yourself to ayahuasca, an MDMA, also known as ecstasy. Those are sort of chemical versions of this. Are you essentially trying to recreate the puma chasing you on the Serengeti? Is that is that what this is? Yeah, I'm trying to give us real dangers, but not dangers that are going to hurt us. Like the point of the wedge is not to put yourself into a place where you're actually going to get damaged. The point is to give you stresses that have physical outlets to it. So with the kettlebells, and you said you throw the kettlebell at the head. That's not true, and I don't want people to go out and start throwing kettlebells at each other's heads. Well, the stress, I guess what I said is that the stress of it is that it would be at your head. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's the fear of, you know, because when someone hears I throw kettlebells, they think, oh, man, you're, you're going to break your foot or you're going to break your partner's foot. And the first time you throw it, it's scary. Like you clench every muscle in your body and mm. you feel like you just want to run away. But what you're actually doing is because the threat of that kettlebell hitting you is so palpable and so real. But the movement is actually very easy. It's not difficult to catch a kettlebell. What happens is you both completely focus on that object that's going between you and your movements start coordinating automatically. It's what we call a flow state. And you go from this this thing of danger to essentially dancing. So this exercise of kettlebells uses the threat of hurting yourself to actually form connections and empathetic links to the other person that you're throwing the kettlebell with. It's fascinating. There are a ton of videos on YouTube of this kettlebell tossing back and forth, and it really it becomes this choreography. Now, you hinted at the, the potential health benefits of this kind of release and this kind of focus, and I think you said autoimmune. Yeah. Ex- expound on that for me. So the autoimmune stuff really comes from uh, the research on it really comes from my earlier book, which is called What Doesn't Kill Us. There's this guy named Wim Hof. He's the Iceman. He uh, is known for dunking himself in cold water and just like being warm in these like Arctic temperatures. And when I first reported the story on him in 2011, I was going to debunk him. I was going to say, you're you're crazy and this is, doesn't work. And it turns out I could do the same things he did after like a week of training because it's very easy to learn. But what I didn't expect is that this autoimmune illness that I had, uh, you know, since I was a child, um, just sort of vanished after doing the Wim Hof method. And what it was, I would get these canker sores, these big white mouth ulcers in my mouth, probably about once a month. And they were like the size of dimes. And these were like, you know, some people who were listening might get canker sores. Mine were on steroids. They were really bad. But I did this method and then they sort of went away. And while there's a lot of science to why this is, and there was even a clinical trial on a Wim Hof method and autoimmunity that you should check out. It's on, all over Google. The way I like to explain it is that, you know, when we're d- dumping this adrenaline and this cortisol and all these stress hormones in our body, you can think of your immune system as like a pack of wolves. They're going out trying to detect predators and uh, detect infections and yeah. deal with them. But when we we're in the absence of predators, and then we're also giving those wolves adrenaline. They need something to do, so they end up chewing on your body, right? They end up, being, you know, and for me, they were chewing up canker sores. Huh. Uh, 
Whereas if we're doing these methods, what I'm essentially doing is giving those wolves chew toys. You know, I drunk the <laughs> adrenaline in, and then I, then I give them the cold shower and then they're like, okay, we'll chew on this instead. Oh. And that's why this is so effective at reducing not only my canker sores, but many, many other conditions, at least anecdotally. And, you know, we have to make the caveat here that even though I, I know of hundreds of cases, uh, we really would love a controlled randomized study that, you know, is 10 years to do and a billion dollars to cost. But we just don't have that yet. My guest is investigative journalist Scott Carney of Denver. In recent years, he's investigated the often hidden powers of our bodies. His new book is The Wedge, Evolution, Consciousness, Stress, and the Key to Human Resilience. After a break, how changing the way we breathe, using our noses more than our mouths, could change our lives for the better. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We think of stress as taking a toll on our bodies, but what if we could use it to our advantage? Denver journalist Scott Carney traveled the globe in search of what he calls the wedge, things that can help us manage our response to stress. And they might be fairly stressful things like taking a cold shower. Well, the wedge is also the title of Carney's new book. And let's get back to one of its major themes, breath. When you learned to fend off the cold, uh, a lot of it had to do with breathing. As I said, many of us are obsessed right now with our breath and whether it's clear and whether Mm -hmm. it's healthy and whether it's an indication that we might be getting sick. One of the most practical exercises I took away from your book is trying to breathe more through my nose as opposed to my mouth. Mm -hmm. Explain why that's a a thing and like ground us in in the science, which, by the way, I just want to say your touchstone in this book is science, Mm -hmm. and to what extent it can back up the claims that people are making. Right. So with breathing, you know, most Americans, uh, most people in the Western world are mouth breathers by nature, right? We just don't have very good hygiene, so we breathe through our mouth. But, you know, we have noses for a reason. If you look out in the animal world, almost every animal keeps its mouth closed when it's breathing unless it is in an excited state, right? Unless it needs to sprint or something, in which case it opens its mouth and draws in more air and then exhales more CO2, which is the um, byproduct of respiration. Now, for whatever quirk of evolution that this that it turned out this way is that we actually don't detect oxygen levels in our body. What we detect, well, you know, when you get to that moment where you want to gasp if you're holding your breath, yeah. what you're actually detecting is the buildup of CO2. So when you have higher levels of CO2, that correlates with anxiety as well. That, that gives you sort of those anxious feelings. You know, mm-hmm. when you're holding your breath, you can think about that, that time where you just have to breathe and it's really difficult and this is anxiety. And, and you know, if you go to um, cognitive behavioral therapy, sometimes they will dose you with CO2 to induce a panic attack in a safe setting in order for you to get feel okay about the panic attack. And that, that this alleviates some of the anxiety of panic attacks. But the important thing to realize is that CO2 can actually trigger the panic 
okay? So what happens is if you're breathing through your mouth, you're always blowing off CO2. So you actually are very sensitive to CO2 buildup in your body. Even low levels of CO2 will actually make you feel more anxious. Uh, and in correlation to that, it'll also make you feel more exhausted if you are uh, doing sort of an endurance event or something like that. And what the exercise is, is if you start switching from mouth breathing to nose breathing, you're actually restricting the flow of oxygen that's, that you're used to. And at first, this will make you feel a little anxious, right? Yeah. This will actually be really difficult. It will bring in emotions that you do not, that you, you're like, I, I want to breathe normally. But, but what happens is you will build up tolerance to CO2, which will make you less anxious in general because you've sort of just made yourself more resilient to it. And it's especially great if you can do a cardio workout while just breathing through your nose. And I know it sounds sort of easy to do. Okay, I'll just breathe through my nose. Uh -oh. But this is, will be the hardest cardio workout <laughs> of your life. And you will have not only it will be physically exhausting, you will be emotionally spent at the end of that too because you're also having these to, to manage your anxiety. However, if you push through it, if you sort of continue these practices over time, you have sort of across the board changes in both anxiety and interestingly enough, performance. Because what you can do is then when you're in that, let's say you're a sprinter and you train sprinting just nose breathing, then when you switch to mouth breathing, you have all of this more oxygen, you're blowing off more of CO2 and you actually have raised the floor of your performance. Mm. It's, I've been riding my bike to and from work and experimenting with this. It's not easy, mm -hmm. by the way, to just focus on nose breathing when you are in any kind of cardio activity. It does strike me that the masks that we're all wearing these days have a very similar effect, actually. I wind up being much more conscious of nose breathing. Yeah, I mean, you know, we should start a company called COVID Fit because these masks actually do restrict your air pathways and you're sort of rebreathing CO2. And that can actually make you feel more anxious. Um, yeah. And you can just think about it. No one likes wearing a mask, right? Um, but over time, you will develop tolerance to that CO2. And the long-term effects are probably beneficial from a CO2 tolerance perspective as well as not spreading germs around everywhere. I mentioned some of the more extreme experiments that you took part in to understand this kind of mind-body connection. MDMA therapy, which the FDA is warming up to. Um, a lot of research into this actually at CU Boulder, which is part of a clinical trial to treat PTSD with MDMA-guided therapy. Um, you drink ayahuasca in the Amazon, which you describe as having, quote, the consistency of used motor oil and a taste somewhere between rotting fruit and coffee grounds. Um, but a more straightforward experiment was to go into a float tank. The, yes. These have popped up all over the place. I had no idea that the military reportedly uses them to calm soldiers. Will you describe the environment they create? Yeah, so I went to floating in two different places, uh, one in Tulsa, Oklahoma at a, at a float research center and also at Samana Float uh, just down in Rhino. And what is so fascinating about um, about the wedge is that you know, most of the time I'm going into places that are really, really intense, yeah. right? And then controlling myself in that environment and, and then managing to look inside my body about what's happening outside the body. But in a float tank, you're sort of flipping the script a little bit. You are instead 
minimizing as much as possible the environmental stimulus so that you only realize that your body is an environment in itself. There are sensations that are just endemic to your body that, that you maybe don't even realize on a daily basis, even though you are feeling them on a subconscious level. Mm. So I'm floating in a tank and I can hear my heart. I can hear the creaking of my joints. I can feel the blood pressure in my veins. And that stuff is sort of happening on a low level all the time. And one of the big themes of the book is what I call a neural symbol. And this is sort of really the engine that makes the wedge work. Essentially what it is, is whatever you feel anything from the outside world that comes into your body as both a sensation and an emotion. So it comes in through your skin or your eyes or wherever, yeah. right? Enters into the lowest parts of your brain and then your brain bonds that sensation with emotion. And that's how it makes sense of it because otherwise the sensation has no meaning. And this is what a neural symbol is. And whenever you feel something the first time, you sort of bond this in a special way in your brain so that the next time you feel that that same sensation, it actually accesses the prior emotion that you had when you first felt the same stimulus. Now, in a float tank, where this is so important, is that in a traumatic event with, let's imagine the soldier in Afghanistan who's walking down the street and it's like a nice day, sunny and whatever. Um, there's some kids playing, certain quality of light, there's some smells. And then boom, roadside bomb, he's thrown to the ground, his buddy's dead. And he's sort of looking around, his heart's pounding in his chest. He's breathing really heavily. And uh, you know, this is a really traumatic, horrible event for him. When he comes back home, one of the things that might trigger a panic attack for him is if he has the same quality of light that was that same day or a smell of flowers, which isn't a traumatic thing normally, but it's bonded with that previous emotion in him. And that triggers a panic attack. Now, the same thing can happen with your own body. You can be, because the first time people are most aware of their heartbeat, for instance, mm. is when the adrenaline is pumping at full volume after a traumatic event. And so that the heartbeat is always there and it's always sort of triggering back to that traumatic experience for these people with PTSD. That is my own body so, is the cue. My own body is the roadside bomb. Yeah, it, Exactly. So when you go to a float tank, well, and with this researcher Justin Feinstein at the at the Lariat, um, sorry, the Laureate Institute for Brain Research, has shown that when you put these people in a float tank, they suddenly have a new association with their heart because now the environment is so calm, it's so peaceful, it's so easy that their heartbeat now isn't as alienating, their breath isn't as alienating, and they can actually create a new neural symbol on their on their sort of like their library shelf of neural symbols that then they can also access. And what his studies have shown is that these are almost as effective as SSRIs in reducing panic and anxiety, which is amazing. SSRIs, the, the pharmaceuticals, yeah. I mean, it's just so fascinating because, of course, I'd want my body to know don't touch the stove twice. It makes sense that my body learns to associate that negative... A sensation with the emotion of don't touch that. But you don't want that with walking down the street on a sunny day and smelling flowers. And so th there's the ability to retrain that, which is a version of, of what we've been talking about, this kind of wedge idea. We, we've covered a lot of ground, um, and that's because you covered a lot of literal ground for this book, Crisscrossing the Globe. And when that was still possible, remember that, Scott? Um, <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> it, it's such a trite question, but what do you want people to take away from the book? 
I really want people to reframe their understandings of stress. You know, life is difficult, right? Life is difficult, particularly right now in various and novel ways. Yeah. But we have a choice, as your mother said, right? We have a choice on how we will respond to that stress. And sometimes it's very difficult to do. And what I want people to realize is that if you're able to engage different physical stresses, and physical and emotional stresses are, are important, if you have a variety of these tools out there, then you will become more emotionally resilient, you become less anxious, less depressed, and I hope you'll have similar experiences as my remission of cankers if you have an autoimmune illness. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. It's always a pleasure. Denver investigative journalist Scott Carney, his new book is The Wedge, Evolution, Consciousness, Stress, and the Key to Human Resilience. Finally today, new music from Boulder Act Big Gigantic. The electronic duo is popular at festivals, having performed at Coachella, Lollapalooza, Bonnaroo, and more. Big Gigantic also holds their own festival, Rowdy Town, at Red Rocks each year. That is good. Like many artists, Big Gigantic had to postpone part of their tour this spring due to the pandemic. But their latest album, which came out in February, may tide fans over till the dates are rescheduled. Free Your Mind includes collaborations with artists like The Funk Hunters, Ash, and soul singer Jennifer Hartswick heard on this track. Free Your Mind, the title track off the latest album from Big Gigantic. The Boulder duo had to cancel most of their upcoming tour, but for now, their music festival Rowdy Town is set to happen this September at Red Rocks. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.